0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I am Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato. Uh, recent weeks have we witnessed an increased activity in financial regulatory reform, particularly in the House of Representatives. Uh, sadly, missing from this debate uh, on capital has been what to do about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, our forum today is Cato's attempt to nudge that debate along a little bit. Uh, While the Federal federal Rescue of Freddie and Fannie will at some point in my mind force some sort of resolution as to their future, uh, I think that resolution needs to keep in mind the role they played in the financial crisis. Uh, Freddie and Fannie did not simply represent a risk to their shareholders. They also played a lead role in destabilizing not only our mortgage markets but also our financial markets. Uh, For instance, Freddie and Fannie served as the primary channel for funding excess world savings into the U.S. subprime market. It was via the GSEs that China and others saw their dollar holdings converted into subprime MBS. Uh, Additionally, GSE debt was spread throughout our financial system. At the height of our bubble, GSE securities represented over 150 percent of Tier 1 capital for insured banks. Uh, It was not simply insured banks. Also, over 40 percent of the holdings of money market mutual funds were in GSE securities. Had Freddie and Fannie not been rescued – Primary reserve would have not been the only fund to break the break the buck. Um, Wall Street was also heavily invested in GSE debt. Uh, for instance, if you look at Maiden Maiden Lane One, which is the securities <laughs> the Fed has backed uh, of Bear Stearns, over fifty percent of Maiden Lane One were GSE securities. None of this would have been possible without the implicit guarantee of the federal government enjoyed by Freddie and Fannie. Uh, Today's panel would directly address the issue of this guarantee, and will ask whether our mortgage markets and financial markets have benefited from the existence of such. Um, Our first speaker is Professor David Reese. David is a professor of law at the Brooklyn University Law School. He has published a number of articles in the legal and political structure of Freddie and Fannie. Uh, In addition to his legal scholarship, David has also been an associate at the New York office of Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison in their real estate department, and an associate in the San Francisco office of Morrison and Forrester in their land use department. Uh, David has also been a law clerk with Timothy Lewis of the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Uh, Our second panelist is Jay Brinkman, who is the Chief Economist uh, and Senior Vice President for the Mortgage Bankers Association. Prior to joining uh, the Mortgage Bankers Association in 2001, Jay handled portfolio strategy for Fannie Mae. Jay has also worked in commercial banking and was on the business school faculty at the University of Houston. Uh, our final panelist will be David Crowe, Chief Economist uh, and Senior Vice President at the National Association of Home Builders. Uh, prior to Dave's many years at NEHB, he served as the Deputy Director of the Division of Housing and Demographic Analysis uh, at the Department of U.S. Housing and Urban Development. Uh, for those of you who cannot get enough of uh, Jay and Dave in one day, I believe they will both testifying tomorrow in front of Senate Banking Committee, uh, talking about the state of our housing and mortgage markets. Uh, with that, I want to welcome uh, our Professor Dave.
1: Uh, to the podium thank you very much I'm just going to close the laptop is that okay Um, it's a pleasure to be here and to talk about this issue Um, it is uh, quite timely and uh, something worth quite a bit of thought to answer the question which way forward for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac Uh, to answer this question I want to do three things First, provide some historical context. I know not everyone in the audience is uh, as interested in it as the people on the podium. Um, second, to outline four philosophical positions regarding Fannie and Freddie. And third, to evaluate four of the proposals uh, as to how they should exit uh, conservatorship because they offer a good range of, of, of thinking uh, as to what's out there, as to how, how, how this should uh, play out. So let me just jump in with the first task and provide some historical context. The secondary mortgage market that we know today was created in large part uh, by the government-chartered, but importantly, uh, privately-owned Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Fannie and Freddie were specially created by the federal government to encourage home ownership. By offering to purchase loans made by lenders on standardized terms, Fannie and Freddie offered liquidity and stability to what had been a very informal secondary market. In the last two decades, Fannie and Freddie became the darlings of Wall Street, as they reported growth and profits Uh, Year after year by borrowing money at low rates because of the special relationship, their implied guarantee, um, with the federal government and using it to purchase residential mortgages that pay um, interest at higher rates. They grew extraordinarily large. Uh, Together, they own or guarantee more than 40 percent. I think it's now 44 percent of all the residential mortgages in the United States, and this amounts to over $5.4 trillion in mortgages. So needless to say, that's a lot of trillions. Um, Fannie and Freddie's overall success in exploiting the benefits of their government charters has concentrated an extraordinary amount of risk in the two companies, Um, and this has been compounded by their successful fights over the years to expand the reach of their business model. Um, They've been winning additional privileges from Congress to move into subprime, exotic parts of the jumbo market, um, which have made them larger and larger and larger. As a result, Fannie and Freddie continued to grow at a rapid rate through the early 2000s until they were each hit by a separate accounting scandal. In response to these scandals, Congress and and the two companies' regulators began to take various steps to rein them in. Um, They stabilized around 2007. And then the current credit crisis commenced. Uh, their market share began to increase once again as other lenders could not raise capital to lend to home borrowers. At first, many uh, commentators believed that they were going to escape un- unscathed, but it turned out that they had far greater exposure to toxic alt-A and subprime mortgages uh, in, in uh, their-, their holdings than they had previously disclosed. And because of their poor underwriting, not just uh, in this toxic area, but even in the prime area, they posted quarterly losses in 2007 that ran into the billions of dollars with larger losses uh, on the horizon. And as a result, they are having trouble with their capital requirements um, that had been set by their regulators. The problems, and this is, I know, a, a rehash for many of you, but the problems began to spiral out of control Uh, at the two companies along with the rest of the financial center until then Secretary of the Treasury Henry Paulson asked Congress to give Treasury the authority to take over the two companies if they were not able to meet their their obligations. Congress with, uh, and I, I don't need to emphasize this in this town, but with remarkable alacrity, passed the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008 in the summer of 2008, which allowed the government to take control of the two companies. Soon thereafter, Paulson decided that, in fact, the two companies were flirting with insolvency and placed them in conservatorship uh, pursuant to the act. While the American taxpayer will likely be required to fund a bailout of the two companies that will be measured in up to the hundreds of billions of dollars, the current state of affairs, and you could tell I'm a half-glass-full kind of person, the current state of affairs gives us an opportunity to rethink the role that these two companies uh, should play, and, and more importantly, more broadly, the way that the conforming market should be structured going forward. So let's move on to the second subject, uh, four broad positions regarding the appropriate role of Fannie and Freddie in the housing market. The first position, which was quite popular until the credit crisis, was that Fannie and Freddie are generally doing their job, uh, the job that they were designed to do, um, although their powers and the powers of their regulators should be tweaked a bit. The second position is, again, Fannie and Freddie are pretty much doing their job, but they're retaining too much of the implied subsidy that derives from the gu- government's guarantee um, for the benefit of shareholders and management, and this was at the expense of affordable housing goals. This would be the second main, main position. Third position, Fannie and Freddie should be nationalized uh, because the federal government has effectively taken on so much risk associated uh, with the, the, the housing markets already. Let's just make it formal. Um, And finally, Fannie and Freddie pose a systemic risk to the financial system, unfairly benefit from their regulatory privilege, the the implied guarantee that we've discussed, um, and they do not create net benefits for the American people. Uh, And the the natural result of the fourth position is, as a result, the company should be privatized in one form or another. I take the fourth position. Um, Until they had entered conservatorship, this had really been considered a political non-starter quite a naive position, um, particularly because Fannie and Freddie had so many allies in both the Democratic and Republican Party. But it is now, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, losses later, uh, one of the options on the table for a post-conservatorship Fannie and Freddie. Let, let's review the, the the four positions once in a little bit more depth. One taking the first, the first view that Fannie and Freddie are generally doing the job uh, that they're designed to do would take a look at how financial institutions are regulated throughout uh, industrialized uh, countries and see that uh, the government always has a very close hand in uh, the operation of major financial institutions and say that Fannie and Freddie are really not exceptional in this regard. Um, rather, they're typical of the financial sector in an advanced industrialized uh, economy. Um, and the natural result of that position is there's no need to extricate our relationship. We just need to fix it, um, find the ways that it uh, differs from uh, more mainstream regulation, a stronger regulator. Historically, Fannie and Freddie have had a weak regulator, and, and that should be a sufficient solution. Uh, along with that position are uh, a whole range of very modest uh, policy uh, goals, to limit the size of their portfolio, maybe to issue some subordinated debt to give a better sense of the actual credit risk, a bunch of very modest suggestions that don't do much to the underlying business model of Fannie and Freddie. Unsurprisingly, affordable housing providers would take the second position, um, that Fannie and Freddie are pretty much doing the job uh, that they're supposed to be doing, which is to make housing more affordable for American homeowners, um, but that they're retaining too much of the value of uh, the implied guarantee in the form of excess profits when you compare their profits to the rest of the financial sector to uh, at least um, it would appear to be excess uh, compensation for management um, compared to comparable organizations. And there was a an era uh, earlier this decade where that was extremely the case, Um, and that what should be done is that that excess profit that results from their regulatory privilege, the benefits they get from the government, should be redirected to affordable housing. Given the shared agenda of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, on the one hand and affordable housing providers on the other, this is not a surprising position, Um, and they favor proposals that would redirect some of the excess profits of Fannie and Freddie uh, to such affordable housing programs. Um, As part of the act last year, um, Congress implemented an affordable housing trust fund, uh, the goal of which was that $500 million a year, up to $500 million a year um, of income, would be redirected from the two companies uh, to an affordable housing trust fund. Um, And this would be invested throughout the country in affordable housing projects and this was perceived at the time um, by advocates for this line, by the New York Times editorial page, as a painless way to, dra- to dramatically increase the funding for affordable housing in the country. Um, this plan, of course, was scuttled uh, by what had happened to the two companies. Um, nobody was arguing that we should continue to redirect money from Fannie and Freddie as they were losing so much money themselves. Um, third position, nationalization. Nationalization. This has only begun to be, take, be taken seriously in the last year, and in fact, then-Secretary uh, then Secretary Paulson was one of the first to kind of raise the subject, um, which seem to be an anathema to, to someone uh, who presents himself as a fiscal conservative, but at one point he proposed merging the two companies with the Federal Housing Administration, um, which already insures certain mortgages. Um, he did note in, in, in putting this out on the table that this is going to place a lot of underwriting responsibility on a government agency, and this is not necessarily something that we think the government uh, does well, underwriting um, financial risk. Although, on the other hand, it's not something that the private sector has done well recently either, so uh, it's unclear how that, how that weighs out. Um, the Obama administration has also um, kind of uh, considered... Uh, nationalizing on some level, or at least is quietly discussing uh, options that involve some aspect of nationalization. Um, and, in fact, the, the administration has used Fannie and Freddie as an extension of its housing policy, um, which is a very useful, large tool to have if you're in the middle of a crisis. Um, so, um, and, and, of course, Congress uh, could perceive it as a new tool if it was an arm of the government and Since when does Congress not like to have a new, powerful, sophisticated tool at its disposal? Um, So as previously noted, I advocate for the fourth view, that Fannie and Freddie present a systemic risk to the financial system, that they unfairly benefit from their regulatory privilege, and that they do not create meaningful net benefits for the American people. So they create some benefits, but we we have also identified very clearly and concretely the costs that they have imposed on the taxpayer. Um, you can look at them from a, a little bit of a theoretical perspective, as I, as I do in, in an article that um, had caught Mark's eye. Um, and look at them as, as creatures of regulation and, and evaluate whether they are effective at maintaining competition, um, at efficiently allocating society's goods and resources, at promoting innovation, at preventing inappropriate wealth transfers, at preserving consumer choice, and at preventing an overly concentrated economy. And my analysis, which I will not go into the details today, uh, argues that pretty much on every criteria um, they come up short, and they do not achieve legitimate public policy goals. They've, they've outgrown their origins in a way that is, uh, has a net negative effect. I, I think what you would say is that the two of them are really holdovers from an earlier era of government action. They played an incredibly important role in setting up the secondary mortgage market and at a time when other companies were barred by regulation from doing so themselves and really saw to the creation of a standardized liquid market. Um, and and that, that, um, that work cannot be overstated as, as to its importance to the American housing finance markets. Um, but if we were to create such a housing finance system from scratch today, I do not think that we would um, – use Fannie and Freddie as our model. Um, they are not necessarily the flexible kind of policy approach that uh, we think would, would would best serve us in, in um, a rapidly changing financial environment. Um, I would thus argue that privatization is needed to remedy the state of affairs. Um, this is not, you know been ignored as a possibility across democratic and republic administrations treasury has seriously considered this but there's never really been the (coughs) political opening that there is today so let's talk about some of the the plans that are out there um each involving different degrees of government involvement uh to figure out the future of Fannie and freddie on one level, one idea that has some initial interest is to convert them into cooperatives uh, to be owned by lenders. Um, and there is some, some traction for this idea, um, or at least as a partial solution to the problem. The second is to break the companies up into a number of smaller companies or, or charter a number of similar competitors, effectively allowing them to remain uh, privileged in their regulatory Um, status as GSEs, but to have a more competitive market so that they would mimic um, a more competitive market like the banking sector. The third is to leave them intact, but to regulate them like public utilities. Uh, The fourth is to convert them into some kind of generic financial services holding company. The first proposal to convert Fannie and Freddie into cooperatives does have precedent. There are two other privately owned GSEs, that's government-sponsored enterprises, that are cooperative lenders, the Federal Home Loan Bank System, and the Farm Credit System. Uh, indeed, some at some points have called for the Federal Home Loan Bank System to take over Fannie and Freddie. Um, and this proposal has some initial attraction, as it might attenuate the short-term profit-maximizing culture that characterizes a public, uh, publicly traded company like Fannie or Freddie. But history does not give comfort that such a GSE structure is superior to that of Fannie and Freddie. Um, indeed, Congress had to bail out the farm credit system in the 80s, um, and there are rumblings that the federal home loan bank system um, has its own set of problems. So it's, it's unclear that there's any magic pill there. The second proposal, chartering additional housing finance competitors, has some real attraction. Uh, one might look at the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, as a model. There are numerous recipients of regulatory privilege um, in the case of um, – the GSEs that would be kind of their implied guarantee or their explicit guarantee. In the case of the FDIC, it's access to the, um, to the insurance fund. And if they compete amongst themselves, it will drive down any kind of excess profits that the company will keep because, they, in order to compete in their in their market, um, they will be they will be forced to to give up some of those profits. Um, if the Fannie, Freddie oligopoly could be diluted with enough similar competitors. The amount of uh, economic rent that they do gain or profits that they do gain um, would be reduced. Um, And you could also argue that this would spread risk from two firms to many firms. Um, This second benefit of GSE competition is less compelling Uh, now that we have experienced a bubble where so many financial services companies have effectively acted in a herd-like manner. Um, And so if you have a kind of a monoline business, like um, we only deal in residential mortgages, um, there's a very good likelihood that if you have a bunch of companies they are going to have very similar models, um, and they're going to take very similar risks. And, and maybe at the margins, some will be more conservative and some less conservative, but effectively you're going to see a similar business model. And when you have an extraordinary crisis like we face today, I think you're going to see that they would all sink um, or swim simultaneously. Um, and as with uh, the first proposal, the American taxpayer is still left with the contingent liability of the government's guarantee of their obligations. So... That, that proposal has, has its limitations. The third proposal, to regulate uh, them like utilities, also, you know, of academic interest, but also at points of political interest. Um, but one really does worry uh, that the common regulatory problem of capture, where the industry ends up controlling the regulator, uh, would be of special concern here. Fannie and Freddie are famed for their lobbying might. Um, combined, uh, they are one of the biggest lobbyists um, in terms of expenditures, uh, in D.C., and the, the, the web of connections they have through government, through the private sector, through the affordable housing industry is unparalleled. Um, so, so Capture, always a concern uh, with regulation, is of, of greatest concern with companies like Fannie and Freddie. The fourth proposal is to convert them into some kind of generic financial services holding company along the ins- lines of an institution like a J.P. Morgan um, or a Bank of America, just some large financial services institution that competes uh, as, uh, as such. It has the attraction of simplicity. Um, and there's also precedent for this approach. Sally May, which was originally a government-sponsored enterprise that dealt with student loans, um, has been successfully converted into a private company. Um, and it also sends a message that the American housing finance market has kind of grown up. Um, if there is a, a major crisis, no financial services company, uh, company can, can survive it without government intervention in all likelihood, um, but that this sector of the financial services industry is ready to act like the rest of the financial services uh, industry and compete on private terms. Now, let's talk a little bit about uh, the costs of such a proposal. First, to the extent that Fannie and Freddie play a role in stabilizing the residential mortgage markets, other federal in- instrumentalities would need to replace them. So during a panic, you would need the Treasury or the Federal Reserve Board to be able to step in um, and perhaps purchase mortgage-backed securities that met certain underwriting criteria. Um, Second problem with the proposal of privatization is that studies indicate that spreads for Fannie and Freddie securities would widen, once they lost their implied guarantee, from somewhere between 22 to 60 basis points, um, which is uh, 0.2 to 0.6 of a percentage point from comparable treasuries if the two companies were privatized. This will, of course, impact homeowners who will pay slightly higher interest rates for their conforming mortgages. And let's be clear, we're talking about slightly higher measured in the tens of dollars a month. Um, But to the extent that Congress felt that this was an unacceptable burden on homeowners, um, they would need to do something, uh, some additional tax credit or tax deduction in the tax code, um, or something to reduce that burden if they felt that it was uh, not something that they wanted to pass on directly to homeowners, or at least uh, immediately. Um, Third, uh, if the federal government wanted to increase funding for affordable housing, as um, contemplated in in the act passed last year, it would need to do, do so through direct expenditures or, again, changes to the tax code. And then finally, um, because Fannie and Freddie have had such extraordinary market dominance, and because they are are also creatures um, that had to answer to the public to some extent, they have imposed incredibly pro-consumer terms onto the mortgage market, um, not just on the part that they control, but really onto broad swaths of the subprime market and the jumbo market as well, um, and uh, I will argue that that is something that we cannot give up, that the government would need to ensure that um, legitimate consumer protection uh, regulation was in place to replace Fannie and Freddie if they no longer were acting according to a public mission but were acting merely as private actors. They also impose a variety of best practices on other players in their industry, and this is something that we'd also have to pay attention to and ensure that they're maintained um, to protect the, 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 the best workings of that industry. But notwithstanding these limitations, and, and these are serious things that need to be addressed, um, I believe that the full privatization proposal has the most going for it. It avoids the problem of the government's guarantee that remains with the other three proposals, and it leaves to the private sector what it's supposed to do best, evaluate risk, and, and I know we should chuckle a little bit right now when we say that, but but we, we, I believe we have we share a faith that in the long term that's the case. And it leaves to the government what it is supposed to do best, protect against systemic risk, protect consumers, and provide affordable housing uh, to those who could not otherwise afford it. And we we will hear some additional proposals from the other panelists, and I don't want to steal their thunder by preemptively responding to theirs. um, But I I will say and I will emphasize that um, I believe in in today's political uh, culture, um, if we do not focus heavily on consumer protection, and if we do not focus heavily on uh, promoting a vigorous affordable housing policy, there's no real chance for GSE reform. Um, the the popularity of um, affordable housing across a broad swath of the American polity is, is, uncle- is, 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 is uh, uh, unmatched, I believe. And I think that if that is not built into uh, the change in regime with, with Fannie and Freddie, um, then, then these concerns that I've spent most of my time talking about won't be addressed either. Um, well, uh, let me end on that, and I look forward to your comments and your questions.
2: Thank you. Um, I just have to say, uh, when Mark first called me up about this, he said, uh, Jay would like you to uh, discuss your proposal, would like to have you for lunch. And I thought about it, and I said, well, here I am standing up here talking about a new federal program, a new federal guarantee on mortgages coming over to Cato, When it wasn't clear to me whether I was going to share in lunch or actually be lunch. So that uh, with that, uh, maybe we can uh, go through it and see just what uh, uh, what the ultimate outcome is. We have put out a proposal. This has been something we started working on last year, actually before the conservatorship was announced, because as the increasing levels of support uh, were announced from the federal government to Fannie Mae, it was, two things were clear, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that uh, there was going to be no going back. Once you make an explicit, uh, an implicit guarantee explicit, uh, it stays. And that the, the current system of sort of holding things together was not sustainable in the long run. So that if, if you can't go back to where you were and you can't stay where you are, you pretty much have to go forward. And so that's where we, uh, we started developing some ideas. Had a A conference here in in Washington uh, last fall. In January, we put out a set of principles that we thought there were a lot of models being discussed. And we said, when you look at these, how then do each of these match up against these these various principles? And then went back and said, well, it's probably incumbent upon us to actually apply some of our own thoughts to these principles and see what sort of model would would come into play. And so we ended up really addressing uh, some of those principles to narrow those down into uh, four points. First, what do we need in terms of what do investors need? And clearly, one thing is needed is what is the level of support? Is it there or is it not? That the idea of implicit guarantees will no longer sell. Investors want to know what is the degree of guarantee, what is the limit of that guarantee, and I will buy based on that. Because unless we build a market where people are actually going to want to buy the securities, we're wasting our time. The second issue, as we've seen, and the the issue in some of the private labels, what is the backup liquidity? What is the guarantee that if I hold this and they need to sell, will the market actually be there for me to, to sell the instruments? The third issue is how simple is it to understand Versus how much information is required on the part of the investors it 's been a good bit of attention that we need more loan level information, more detailed information about securities uh, to make investors want to trade these things. But the truth is there are a lot of investors out there who don 't want to do that much work. They will trade based upon expected yield advice. They will, uh, based upon whether it has a federal guarantee or not, they are not going to be running loan-level credit models. And if they are required to do that, they're going to say, okay, what is my relative yield? I'll just turn around and buy something else because it's really not worth all this extra time and effort. And so we do think a lot of potential investors out there are really looking more for the simplicity of the approach rather than being, have this massive information dump that they then have to work through. Finally, we do want to look at what is the quality of the regulators, what is the guarantors, the quality of the guarantors in the system, who is actually overseeing the things that the investors want to know that there are quality regulators back in Washington that, that really understand what's going on uh, with some of the credit models and, and how the companies are being run. From a borrower origination point of view, they need certainty of execution for lender makes a loan today, that lender wants to know, am I in fact going to be able to sell that in the secondary market at some period forward? Whether it be 14 days, 30 days, 45 days, et cetera, can I still execute at the price that that we've agreed on? Will there be sort of a consistent offering of core products? A lot of different types of mortgages out there over the years. Uh, we've seen some that have performed much worse than others. But the idea is that if you try to protect everything, you end up protecting nothing, that you, you can't really build a system that's going to protect every type of exotic approach to here with, with different payments this, different types of underwriting standards. <clears throat> those can be out there, but you don't actually need all those in order to keep the core market functioning during periods of stress like we have right now, that if we attempt to build something just to support the core market – The rest of it will come and go based upon changes in credit appetites uh, and and interest in taking on credit risk. Finally, we do need absolutely an efficient means of hedging the interest rates associated with doing forward locks on mortgages. So being able to tell a borrower with a fixed-rate mortgage we can do a 30-day lock, a 45-day lock, a 60-day lock, or longer if it involves new construction. Is there an efficient way of hedging that risk in the market with the, the function uh, that the TBA market has historically furnished, and that is important as well. So after going through all that, we ended up with a model that, that looks like this, and if you bear with me, I'll, I'll walk through what we're talking about here. First, we would continue with the existing structure of banks and mortgage lenders <coughs> in terms of originating the mortgages, in terms of secondary market execution, we will then have this system that we essentially re- see replacing the current GSE system. But in addition to that, we would continue to have the FHA, VA, Rural Housing Service, etc. Those loans would continue as, as is, so we're not talking about addressing Ginnie Mae here. Uh, to the extent a private label market would develop, strictly private interest in taking on risk uh, with other mortgages. This then doesn't address the, the types of issues that you would have with, with a private label market that's separate. Now, there are other things here that perhaps covered bonds, portfolio, whole loan sales portfolios, that sort of thing. Uh, this then doesn't address. So given that a large portion of the market could potentially still continue to exist outside of this system, what we're talking about here is for core loans – still to be somewhat determined. Think of this as a great big white canvas in which we're sort of outlined in pencil or, or chalk kind of what we think the picture would look like, but it's going to take a tremendous amount of detail to fill in different things, and the first detail is what exactly is a core loan. Could say those loans, and we say this in the report that accompanies this, is those loans traditionally purchased by the GSEs, fixed rate, some form of simplified adjustable rate mortgage, but a key ingredient is... The types of risk, the types of loans that would go through this would be spelled out. You couldn't suddenly have an expansive mode on a part of one of these companies that says, I would really like to suddenly take a flyer on pay option arms and start buying that in order to make market share. That's not covered in this. That would have to be outside of this structure. To replace the GSEs, we have established or proposed establishing a group of credit guarantor entities, mortgage credit guarantor entities, which we have dubbed the McGees. Uh, we have not, in fact, yet had the letter from the lawyers at McDonald's, but uh, it has been predicted that that's only a matter of time. Uh, what would these McGees do? First, they would be privately capitalized, so we would have the benefit of private equity behind these structures It would be private pricing, private credit judgments. But the ownership structure is sort of open to how that private capital comes into it, whether it's strictly stock held. There's an opening here for doing a co-op type structure. There is a way perhaps for being a wholly owned subsidiary, monoline, standalone, separately capitalized subsidiary of, of an existing financial institution. We don't specify it that way, but that these would be chartered by a new federal regulator we would do away with the concept of congressional charters and all the problems uh, that are are attendant with any kind of congressionally imposed charter, that they would be subject to competition and the regulator, just like with bank charters right now, could decide what's the proper number based on pricing, competition, alternative models, and that the... uh, Uh, Part of the competition, that one thing is that we would expect there'd be a sufficient number of them so that no one of these would be too big to fail, that there would be sufficient capacity in the industry, that if you did in fact have to take one of these down for various problems, the rest then could pick up some of that capacity. These entities then would be expected to maintain... Uh, risk-based capital levels, capital levels that are higher than what's been uh, traditional with the GSEs. They would be limited in the type of loans that they would guarantee. And also, they would not then hold a portfolio other than a portfolio that's needed for de minimis purposes like pooling or for buying back loans that uh, uh, that would then would go bad. The government's role in this would be a new guarantor or a new entity that would fulfill the role of oversight, evaluating the credit risk, because there would only be credit risk in these entities. The interest rate risk we want to shove out completely to the investing community, that they would take the interest rate risk on these long-term instruments. Only the credit risk would be resident here. They would decide the chartering, the numbers, the adequacy of the capital, and in exchange for all that they would provide a security-level guarantee, a wrap around the securities put together, these MCGs, to get the ultimate trading in the secondary market. But in exchange for this wrap, what we would say is, okay, we're making the support explicit. But in order to get that, there then is an explicit payment to the regulator, to the federal government, in exchange for this guarantee. That... uh, Payment would be to cover the operating costs, to cover the insurance cost, and actually pay into a risk-based fund, not unlike the FDIC fund for banks, to say we'll pay into this over time, it is there, so that when a loan goes bad, it first goes against the mortgage credit guarantor entity, And one of the ways we think these entities will compete is based upon the risk-sharing arrangements, that you can have arrangements that they would have a shared risk back with the originators. They can work with MI companies. Perhaps an MI company would actually like to become one of these McGs. But there are various ways, then, of sharing this risk. But when the loan goes bad, it would hit this mechanism and say, does it go 100% against my capital or some percentage against my capital based on whatever risk-sharing arrangement I have in place for handling that. If the losses were so great that the McGee would actually fail, then the risk-based insurance fund would kick in to cover those losses. And only if the private equity then is exhausted, only if the risk-based insurance fund is exhausted, would then the federal government come back in then to guarantee just what is outstanding on the MBS for that particular entity. There would be no support for either the equity or the debt of these institutions. So not only would they not then have, be allowed to build large portfolios, they wouldn't have the economic incentive anyway, because you would not have the implicit guarantee that would carry over to the rest of the equity structure, or that would permit them to take that guarantee into other lines of businesses expanding behind the core loans that they're allowed to be in. How does this compare with what we have now? Uh, Liquidity would be promoted with this explicit government guarantee. We would not be relying on implicit, which carries with it certain costs. Is it going to be there? Is it not going to be there? And People end up buying based on their expectation of what the government would, would do or not do in any situation. It would, the admission of the entities would be explicitly limited to providing liquidity. They could not then branch out into other areas as sort of a charter expansion, utilization of implied guarantee to, uh, to explain, uh, expand in other markets. We would still maintain sort of private entities to assess price, mitigate risk associated with the risks. We would limit them only to core mortgage products. Subject to the approval both of the, the regulator, the G.G., depending upon whether or not the government guarantor is also the regulatory body on this, and that there would only be de minimis portfolios held here, and that the government guarantees would only cover that, uh, that uh, risk associated with just the MBS. Capital requirements would be overseen by a regulator, it would not be clouded by interest rate risk. You would not have the situation like you had historically with the, with the GSEs of taking on a certain amount of interest rate risk in the portfolios, then that also at the same time put at risk the value of the credit guarantee on the MBS or vice versa that the credit risk then would uh, uh, cloud some of the structures put into place then to offset the, uh, the credit risk. An important item is this idea of having the charters granted by the regulator. If you go back and look at banking history, state legislatures learned their lesson as long ago as the 1830s and 1840s when bank charters were originally issued by legislators that that's not the way to do things. They found that people, the only reason they ran for the state legislatures was either to get a a bank charter or to keep somebody else for getting a bank charter, and that so much of the debate around Fannie and Freddie over the years has surrounded these charter issues in, in Congress. What we think is that if you pull that out, have these charters established by a regulator similar to the OCC. That would then remove some of these problems. And then finally, we would address the affordable housing issues by making it much more explicit. Perhaps there is a way to direct income from these structures into uh, uh, affordable housing programs, but keep in mind that low income is not the same as high risk. And so make it more transparent as the way in which Some of these different operations to be funded, but don't hide the risk associated with with some of these loans behind uh, somewhat nebulous uh, affordable housing goals. So with that, I'll turn it over to David.
3: Hey, I accomplished more already than I thought I could. Uh, Thank you. Uh, It's good to be here. Um, As you can probably tell uh, solely by the separation of the desk, I'm probably going to be more on the side of uh, not only because of where I come from, but also because I'm sitting over next to Jay. Um, The home builders are a user of this system, uh, whatever it is. Uh, And so we're somewhere in between on uh, where we fall. We don't have as explicit or as well worked out a proposal as the mortgage bankers do. On the other hand, um, you know, I I don't think the GSEs are the evil empire. Uh, I think that, you know, many years ago we seemed to want to blame everything on El Nino, and now we seem to have decided that Fannie and Freddie are the root of all evil. They've caused this entire housing collapse. Uh, if they hadn't been around and all their uh, terrible uh, behaviors, we wouldn't be where we are. I, I hope no one really believes that here, uh, not to say that there weren't mistakes made. My, my premise has more to do with um, what, what, what are the elements that we need to retain? Let, if we could, let's forget about who they were, what their names are, what transgressions they may have uh, 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 offered to us, uh, and look more at kind of an overall uh, concept of what we want. Uh, of course, this leads me to to be more on, the, on, the, on that side with Jay and, and, and other parts of the housing industry than it does perhaps on the private side. Uh, but the very first one is is you know, kind of the key to where I start, um, we're we're talking about the credit component of the the fannie guarantee or the fannie and freddie guarantee is really something that ultimately is very difficult to uh, guard against uh, in in the, in the space of almost a hundred year we we've had two of these near collapses of our housing finance system and in the earlier one, we invented some systems to try to avoid that again. And in the recent one, we have some systems which have at least allowed that to continue to work. Yes, the government had to step in and play a larger role in it. But had that not been true, where, where would we be right now? What, what other alternatives would we have? Perhaps the, Congress would have quickly invented something, Also, although saying Congress and quickly in the same sentence is a little silly. Uh, but... But the 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 core, I guess, of where I start with this, and the reason that the that a, a private organization built upon entrepreneurship, like the the builders, still believe there is a function for a federal government, is because this is ultimately an un- uninsurable risk. The credit component of it, once it collapses, like like we've seen recently, where. Uh, a, a, a ensuing uh, national recession, uh, large-scale unemployment makes it virtually impossible to insure uh, against such uh, catastrophes, uh, there has to be a backstop to that. Much the same argument that I would uh, present for the FHA being in place now, too. Uh, and so for that reason, there's really no amount of reserves that can be set aside. No, no private entity can guard against that kind of overwhelming losses. So again, you have this ultimate backstop. Uh, I would also argue, uh, as many academics have, that there is a social benefit to housing, that there is a reason why uh, catastrophes of this start, start sort need a federal uh, uh, backstop, need some uh, federal involvement, need some reason why there is ultimately the, the overall taxpayers uh, at risk uh, because of the uh, social benefits that are provided by housing. Uh, you know, I, I, hopefully you are aware of those. Uh, many academic articles on the fact that children, you know, in our occupied homes tend to have higher test scores, tend to stay out of trouble. Um, uh, uh, tend to become better citizens, that homeowners are more active in their communities, those sorts of things which have some pretty solid uh, research, some uh, clear academic type uh, distant from any influence from the evil empires or from the evil uh, uh, housing components. Um, And so this basically leads me to the first conclusion, and therefore, what do you do about it? And that is that you need some sort of a ultimate backstop to mortgage uh, credit. Now, you know, beyond that, what do you want? Well, you want kind of what you got out of these other entities, but it doesn't have to be them. It can be a brand new one. It can be something completely uh, structured from the start. There is a lot of uh, intellectual knowledge retained in the corporations that are still out there. So you do have to think about the potential for how you transfer what's already there into this new component. But I would, you know, of course, many have argued that their standardization work is over. That now we have it, uh, we have private conduits for mortgages. Uh, we sort of don't need that anymore. I would argue that we. I don't know that that's necessarily true. We've we've thrown out all of the kinds of mortgages would get which uh, appeal to or focus on those with lower credit scores, um, and. Obviously, there's a point at which the, the, uh, lending to uh, some individuals is unwise, but there may still be uh, concepts out there which have not been fully developed, which need this, con- uh, this concentrated marketplace with some sponsorship to be able to continue to create the kinds of uh, mortgage instruments that we might need in the future that might allow those who, uh, who might not uh, measure up to the standardized package today but could become... Uh, homeowners. Um, clearly, they have to provide, the, you know, one of the the, uh, the clear signals that the marketplace has provided is the stability and the liquidity, uh, that it's always available. And there's no better uh, example of that than, than right now, that this mortgage market is working only because we do have these entities behind the uh, mortgages. And then finally, it does lower mortgage rates. And uh, it's a it's a legitimate argument to say why what what is the uh, purpose of lowering mortgage rates uh, if if and otherwise you could just do that by a straight out subsidy to those that you feel deserve it. Um, I guess I would argue that's that's a nice idea. Uh, that's an academically uh, uh, reasonable thing to discuss, but is it really a practical alternative? And there, I mean, there was some uh, practicality involved in the notion of. Uh, Allowing Fannie and Freddie to have uh, privilege that that uh, granted them excess profits, and then to take it away, uh, at least in theory, uh, by trying to support underlying uh, affordable housing goals, I'm not necessarily arguing for that. It's just that that becomes perhaps the second best, but only uh, means of actually achieving real subsidy, as opposed to uh, asking Congress to do it explicitly. So what do we need to do that perhaps is different? I don't think I have anything in here that's different, in this case, from from, J, from the mortgage banker's model. Um, we certainly need, uh, you know, with the, the the catchphrase when the debates over the new regulator were were mounting was uh, "world class." I'm not sure I know what that means, so I'm simply saying it's effective and a well-funded regulator with the appropriate powers, so that there is an oversight that doesn't allow for some of the excesses that occurred. Um, that that, per, for instance, uh, restrains a government-backed organization from. Uh, putting into portfolio risky, very risky mortgages, and uh, effectively keeps them from that race to the bottom that everyone else seemed to be engaged in. It has to be well capitalized. Uh, I would say, you know, in this fray over Feeney and Freddie, we've kind of swept in the Federal Home Loan Bank system because it's just another GSE. Well, it really is quite different. And I think whatever this debate uh, comes out, uh, that has to be acknowledged. you know, I think David mentioned the idea of a, of a co-op as a, another option for the, the true the, the, GS, the Fannie and Freddie component of the GSEs, like the Federal Home Loan Bank. I, I wouldn't disagree terribly with the two arguments, although perhaps I would be a little more accommodating to that as a potential. Um, but simply the point is um, they do have a, a very uh, valuable function, they, too, also were clearly uh, uh, key in maintaining many of the, their member banks uh, as their draws uh, went up significantly and then, and then uh, fell back down again, so that they were there when they needed and then they fell back down until uh, uh, next time they're needed. Uh, I do think it cannot be a solely uh, uh, nationalized organization. I agree with that argument. Um, for all the good work that FHA does, it is, it is bound by an enormous amount of bureaucracy and red tape uh, that doesn't allow it to answer to the market needs, uh, doesn't allow it to respond as quickly. And so I would not want to see uh, you know, another uh, 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 secondary mortgage market uh, um, uh, um, constrained by the same sorts of things that a full nationalization would uh, uh, come up with. Uh, Define boundaries. Uh, yes, it has to be limited to what it does. It has to be limited to uh, a certain set of mortgages. Uh, I, I Perhaps it's not quite as restrictive as the mortgage bankers might be on that case, but I do understand that you're not, you're not creating an entity, particularly with a federal uh, backing of some sort, that has the carte blanche to do any kind of business. Uh, but I do believe that this uh, federal backing is necessary. And I just leave you, as the last speaker, I sort of have the uh, ability to either be very long if everyone else has been short or very short if everyone else has been long. I think everyone else has been right accommodating. I'd much prefer to have a discussion and dialogue, so I'm not going to have any more of a presentation, except to say, you know, this is sort of the visual. Uh, visual. If an economist gets up here and doesn't have a graph or two, they probably would be – banned from the profession. So it's simply, uh, you know, uh, a statement that the, um, if the jumbo market is a representation of what it would be like if we didn't have uh, government-involved GSEs, uh, you know, we got up to almost 200 basis point spread between that market and the conforming market. We're much, we're down much below that for a variety of reasons. Uh, but I think that that 's way over the kind of gap that the federal government would be willing to step in and subsidize if we said to every mortgage borrower or potential homeowner that your mortgage rates are going to be as much as two percentage points over what they are now. Thanks
0: I'm going to take the uh, moderator's prerogative and ask the first question myself. Underlying a lot of the uh, discussion and emphasis on having a GSE is allowing homeownership to be more broadly spread and be more affordable to more households. So the question I want to pose uh, is a very basic one to our panelists, which is, uh, is it possible to have too much homeownership? Uh, When would we get to a point where we know we've oversubsidized homeownership? Uh, and I will let David start with that.
1: Uh, you, you know, this is a question I think that uh, people on the left and the right have been thinking about it a lot for the last year or so in particular. Um, and, and it's something that I'm struggling with myself a lot. What is the societally optimal level of homeownership and, and what does it look like? Um, so as, as David had indicated, there is a fair amount of academic research about homeownership. Um, but a lot of that research... Um, finds correlations between home ownership and and otherwise societally beneficial behavior like good citizenship or good outcomes for children. But there is surprisingly little um, that demonstrates causality. Um, So so relying upon, you know, kind of uh, the basis of our empirical knowledge right now to make the argument that we should just keep pushing home ownership no matter what doesn't, I believe, have empirical basis at this point. Which isn't to say we shouldn't have a homeownership policy and which isn't to say that we might all acknowledge um, on, a, on a more gut level that homeownership is something that we want to make available to people um, and, 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 and it is part of the American dream how we define ourselves. We could go back as far as Thomas Jefferson and say that the yeoman farmer was the original homeowner and um, uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh, uh, um, act of 1862, the Homestead Act, the Homestead Act was a continuation. And then in the 20th century, you had Presidents Hoover and Roosevelt and uh, Johnson and Clinton and Bush II uh, and o- Obama, all saying that this is central to our idea of being an American, is the opportunity to own a home. Um, so I would just say, though, let's not say more is always better. Let's think a little carefully about our, our assumptions. What's the right amount? Um, if people put 0% down, um, do they really own a home or do they just own, as someone said, a, an option on future upside potential on the home? Um, is, 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 is paying a, a portion of, of the price of the home integral into becoming a homeowner? And I think we need to start to think about those questions both academically but just as much as a, ma- a matter of policy. Um, what does it mean to own a home and once you have it, um, what does that do to you? Let, let's start thinking about those questions.
2: Jay? Yeah. uh, The MBA represents uh, both single-family lenders and multifamily lenders. So I usually answer that question by saying our philosophy is we think people should live somewhere. (laughs) Uh, That that being said, I I think we've spent much more time looking at the concept of sustainable ownership, that uh, if you look at really what drove some of the problems uh, these days, that uh, it was uh, low-payment mortgages where those payments were not sustainable at the level, how then did that sort of artificially and temporarily inflate demand, and as that demand then naturally shrank because it wasn't sustainable, how much supply then was stranded in the market impacting prices and that going forward. So I think really what we need to examine going forward is exactly this point, is really what's sustainable and, and making the, uh, the systems available. For people, that want to make that choice, but I have to say I know a whole lot of uh, – very good renters and very good owners of apartment buildings. So,
3: Okay, so the same disclosure. Builders build apartment buildings and they build uh, <laughs> owner-occupied homes, so they care about houses as well. Certainly the majority of them build owner-occupied homes. Uh, I guess I would say two things. One, uh, home equity is spread broader across the population than any other kind of equity. Uh, more people have home equity as their savings portfolio than have stock equity. So, so it is even in this time. It I- it is a source for uh, retirement. It's a source for borrowing equity to start businesses. Uh, it becomes essentially the middle class means of uh, rising above their. Their beginnings, perhaps, uh, I would also argue that even though the academics have not necessarily been able to explain causality between uh, social benefit and home ownership uh, they 've done everything they can to root out any other reason uh, i mean the, the studies are are very well done uh, and and adjust for any other possible variation so uh, while, while I might hazard that it 's simply some sense of you've become more responsible and more aware of your surroundings when you suddenly have to make a mortgage payment every month and have to keep the, the, all the repairs done. Um, I, 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 I'm less concerned with someone explaining it to me than I am with the fact that the best science available still proves it.
0: Well, thank you. I want to open it up to uh, questions of the audience. Uh, Bert?
4: Um. Bert Ely, a banking consultant, longtime critic of uh, Fannie and Freddie. Um, it seems to me that there's a very basic question that has been ignored here, and that is what represents uh, the most efficient and systemically safe way to – Uh, fund American owner-occupied housing. Uh, There seems to be an underlying premise that we should have a secondary mortgage market, and yet I don't think that uh, uh, that premise has been necessarily proven. Uh, There there are other options, one of which is that lenders that make mortgages uh, keep the mortgages on their balance sheet, and then fund them through debt they raise, rather than selling them to the secondary mortgage uh, market and funding them with covered bonds, which of course have been around in Europe for a couple of uh, of centuries. So, I'd like to pose this as a as a question: What is your on what what do you base your any sense that the secondary mortgage market is necessarily the most efficient way to uh, uh, fund housing? What are the other options out there? Um, it might be more efficient. And in that regard, if I could just challenge something that Mr. Crowe said, that housing, the mortgage credit risk is a un, privately uninsurable uh, a, a risk or a risk that uh, can't be handled by the private sector. That, to me, is a very, very dubious assumption that separately uh, should be challenged by someone.
0: Uh- David, do you want to respond to that? And then maybe, Jay, you want to talk a little bit about the options? Uh, and, David, anything you want
3: to add after that? Um, well, I simply offer the two historical events in which no private entity could survive uh, the Depression and the most recent Great Recession. I'm not saying you can't calculate what the risks are for an individual mortgage and set aside the or charge the appropriate premium for mortgage insurance or set aside the appropriate Uh, capital for losses. But what I'm saying is you cannot set aside enough to guard against uh, a national recession of this sort where you have 10 or 20 percent of the homes defaulting.
2: Yeah, the question on uh, securitization is uh, what is is the need for that. I would say that given the the current structure of 30-year fixed-rate mortgages that we have in this country makes it very difficult for banks then to hold that on portfolio and handle the interest rate mismatch uh, associated with that. That the, some of the, of course, the original problems with thrifts going back in the 80s with the deregulation of interest rates was that rates went up and they were inadequately hedged for, uh, uh, even if the hedging instruments existed. For then the the losses that they took with what was held on portfolio. Now there are certainly alternatives in terms of covered bonds. These uh, use up capital how much capital then is required in the system for, for the banks to hold that, as well as then what sort of cross-risks, what other risks are taking place in the bank that are not really associated with the, with the consumer mortgage. If you look at the banks that are failing today, most of those losses are associated with construction and development loans, other types of uh, uh, investment in uh, commercial real estate projects that uh, uh, either did not, Come about the way that, that people expected, certainly in this environment, then do you put at risk the uh, the debt that was sold just to cover the thirty year mortgage? Other countries, of course, have other mortgage structures that are very common. Uh, I think if you look at the Canadian system of five year balloons. Uh, I guess the question is whether or not the entire Canadian system of mortgages would be considered exotic products <laughs> under the current terminology in Washington, but there are other systems there that perhaps would lend themselves to, uh, to, to bank portfolios. But I think we've got real problems to the extent we continue to rely on 30-year fixed-rate mortgages, that we have to look to uh, portfolio investors. People would invest 100% their own equity and not, the, not want the cross-risk associated with bank holding.
1: I guess I would just um, make a comment on each point. I, I think that David's argument proves too much. Um, the fact is that really no part of the lending sector could survive on its own without govern- government intervention, either the Great Depression or the Great Recession, as we're now calling it. So the question is, what's special about this sector of the financial market? And maybe there is something special about it. I'm not denying that there is. Um, and then why do we treat it separately? Um, because the government intervened to really uh, bolster many parts of the of the lending sector. So... So I, I think we need to push to be more careful as to um, I, I think our discussion about home ownership is so emotional for everybody on a very deep level that that we don't precisely say what's special about this sector and what special interventions do we need to make for the sector. So I'm not really. Um, giving a a good answer to it, but just saying we need more precision in in what we're asking. Um, And then as to the question about the secondary mortgage market, I think we have to, again, be more precise about our terms. The secondary mortgage market is the market for selling mortgages from the original maker of the mortgage to some other party. That market couldn't exist before the 1970s because of of regulation of banks. Now it can exist. It will exist in some form. And so the question is, what secondary mortgage market are we going to have that is both efficient um, in terms of reducing transaction costs to reduce the cost of credit for everybody, and which one does not have horrible incentives that encourage people to make lousy mortgages, lemons, um, and then push them off on the unsuspecting parties um, who who start going around uh, like sharks around a piece of meat um, during, during a bubble. Um, so we're going to have one. It might have covered bonds features. It might re- be a return to securitization in its traditional form. But I think let's let's ask the question precisely, um, how will parties buy and sell mortgages going forward? They're going to do it somehow.
5: Ed. Uh, Ed Pinto. Jay, I've got a question for you. Um, there's a principle called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle that I don't know if you're familiar with, that it's impossible in physics to know the speed and location of, any object, of an object simultaneously because the mere fact that you try to measure it changes one or the other. And I would argue, and going back to your chart, that the risk-based capital, and we've seen this happen through uh, the Basel uh, rules, um, the mere attempt to set a risk level and apply a capital requirement for it the Heisenberg uncertainty principle comes into play. It is impossible to do one without affecting the other. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are the absolute example of that. When they were set as a 20 percent bucket, uh, they became the preferred investment, which then allowed them to take on all this risk. Uh, how does that uh, impact the proposal?
2: Um, I, I haven't actually written yet the Heisenberg subchapter of the proposal, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll add that. It, no, an answer to your point, I think, is if you look at what then happened with, with Fannie and Freddie, of going uh, two issues, one beyond sort of the core mortgage product. If you look at Fannie's losses in particular, how much of those are concentrated in the pay option arms, uh, the interest-only loans, some of the stated income, things that we would not see covered here, that is sort of we would segregated out into the types of mortgages that are traditionally considered safer. The other aspect of it, though, is if you look at sort of this regulator on top who then is looking at these companies and saying, you know, think of this, perhaps if those products came back and they started seeing massive overdevelopment that for whatever reason suddenly North Dakota was the place to live in this country and speculation and prices in North Dakota going way up, but then you needed a pay option arm or, or something else, that potentially would present systemic risks to the conventional 30 or 15 portfolio that these companies would hold, would actually then have the ability to say, we don't think you ought to be in the North Dakota market just because there's this other risk building in that we see, and similar to the systemic risk council idea that's been kicked around to, uh, to help regulators, and we would certainly see that as a role to look just beyond borrower level or loan level risk characteristics is how this thing develops but actually providing a more macro view of risk that perhaps would put a tighter box around it that would say here's the world in which you can operate we think we can uh, judge that and and set the capital requirements and let the other types of risky products just exist out there without benefit of 20 percent risk ratios or any of that
0: i want to follow up on that a little bit um I think Ed's point about uh, the Basel Capital Standards for Banks encouraging banks to hold significant GSE debt was an issue. Uh, I started and mentioned that over 150% of Tier 1 capital for banks was in GSE debt. Uh, as I also mentioned, they were a huge part of the money market mutual funds. So my question uh, to the panelists should be, uh, are, should we be concerned that so much of the rest of the financial system was so heavily invested in Freddie and Fannie uh, that if Freddie and Fannie got a cold, the rest of the financial system was almost guaranteed to get a fever. Uh, David? Um, my
1: recollection is that there were special regulations that allowed banks to have unlimited amounts of Fannie and Freddie um, debt. Exactly. Um, and so, I mean, you know, you, we have this incredibly complex regulatory structure. You take a general principle like you should have a diversity of investments in, in your in – your, um, portfolio, and then you make an exception, I mean, it's obvious what that means. It's obvious that the government is going to stand behind it, right? So so I, I guess you could say that that was a bad financial judgment, or I guess you could also say it was a, a practically explicit acknowledgement of the implicit guarantee of their debt. I, I don't know if I answered your question directly, but it, it's kind of...
0: Kind of. Yeah. It was the bank regulations that pushed it. Jay, Dave, I don't know if you want to take a step uh, or not.
2: Yeah. One, in our proposal, we uh, uh, explicitly don't see these entities then issuing debt that would be, uh, have any sort of beneficial capital treatment uh, for banks so that there is no guarantee of the debt if they want to include debt in their capital structure. The only thing then that's guaranteed uh, are the MBS. Now, then the question is, how much risk then do you build up? Well, it's, if you, you look at the range of, of housing risks out there right now and, and other types of risk, when you look at who's actually been buying Ginnie Mae securities, say, over the last year, just a massive bank appetite, much more so than in the past, part of it for yield, but a large part of it being the beneficial capital treatment on Ginnie Mae's. And so how this would fit into that structure, I don't know, but explicitly eliminating the, the debt, short-term debt, the rollover from the bank uh, portfolios.
0: Um, ben Front here.
3: Yeah. Peter Whitney at Duke University. Recently there have been a, a number of articles, including one today, front page uh, uh, Washington Times, saying that uh, that FHA is in, insuring a lot of very subprime, uh, very similar type uh, mortgages to the subprime and alt-A that we saw with Fannie and Freddie, and uh, and claims that we're exposing taxpayers to the same kind of soaring default rates and losses that broke uh, brought Fannie and Freddie down. Now FHA is smaller than the humongous uh, Fannie and Freddie, but could you comment on the danger and risk of this uh, FHA
1: expansion, David, and and maybe the others as well? Thank you. I think that people were calling this early on in the crisis. A- and I have to say, I'm very averse to second-guessing um, how people responded to the crisis, um, bo- both administrations. I would not uh, dare to say that I-, I-, I would have known one right decision that that they should have taken. Um, but I think people saw this coming, and FHA has had problems in the past. And I, I believe that Barney Frank has acknowledged that some uh, level of loss is an acceptable loss um, uh, drawing comparisons to the Homeowners Loan Corporation. That being said, I, I believe that they were also making bad loans before the crisis came, came in. And I guess it just brings me back to the question, the fundamental question is, what are we trying to accomplish with our home, home finance um, policy? Um, we want to accomplish sustainable home ownership and uh, products that are unsustainable, whether they're generated by the government or by the private sector, are not in society's interest.
3: Um, well, I, the only response I would make is that there, it's extraordinary times, um, and I, there are subsections of the federal uh, guarantees that seem to be working. I think the VA loans, which allow for 100 percent financing, are uh, have not shown as dire a uh, forecast as have the FHA loans, so I'm not opposed to the possibility that they're still doing something wrong. But I think the the primary uh, d- difficulty right now is that, that we can't see an end to uh, house price declines or at least no uh, beginning of house price increases, and that makes those f- uh, forward-looking uh, forecasts look pretty grim.
2: Yeah, um, <clears throat> we have uh, looked, uh, been looking and following closely what... Uh, FHA's uh, credit box looks like. And I think there are two factors. One is, as I understand, uh, it's still credit scores are not a, a key component of, of what's done there. I think they collect it, but it's not not in the model. Uh, that being said, I don't know what value is of some of that. The joke is that because credit scores perform differently in different part, times of the economy, that uh, 700 FICO is the new 600 is sort of the joke going around the, the, the industry. <laughs> Uh, but on top of that, we, we do have lenders who have put their own credit overlays on top of the existing FHA model just because they are they are not comfortable with some of the risk out there. And we've expressed our feelings to uh, Dave Stevens and, and others that we think that's a major issue that FHA needs to address in order to protect this viability of the system.
0: I think we've got time for one or two uh, additional questions. Uh, lady you.
1: Ann Stone, um, my question is that based on information from friends that have sat on Fannie and Freddie Board talking about the origin, the origin of the crisis being government-driven, where the government directly regulating the, G, uh, the GSEs forced them into more and more risky, um, what other than privatization is going to guarantee that Congress doesn't do this again? Well,
0: before any of our panelists want to respond, I I think it is worthwhile uh, noting that certainly for semi-private organizations like commercial banks, they had their own uh, congressional sticks to make more of this lending too. So, my reflection would be: sadly, I don't think there's much we can do uh, in the short term to stop Congress from meddling in any of this.
3: David. Wow, that's pretty pessimistic, Mark. I, I, I well, I would, I would separate out the function of affordable housing from the function of a secondary market. I think that's where the – I'm not necessarily of a mind that this uh, stealing uh, – taking some of their XX profits and using it for uh, affordable housing is the right way to do it. Segment out uh, a secondary market for the function of liquidity and leave that as the only function they have.
0: I want to follow up on a point, and I think this is something that all of our panelists uh, seem to agree on, which is that, If you're going to subsidize these things, they need to be explicit on budget. And I think that that's actually one way to be able to control Congress in a way. Uh, One of the problems with the GSEs over the years, I think, was because it never showed up on the budget. You could spend as much as you want. You had these contingent liabilities. uh, But nobody ever was accounting for it. So making at least Congress recognize this and if they still pretend to have some sort of pay go and have to offset it elsewhere, uh, I think would force some sort of decision, different decision making.
1: You know, I would just add, again, I think it's really worth us to, to, to push down on this question and, and really figure out what the question is and then think about the policy response. So you hear a narrative on the left and on the right that's very consistent with your narrative. On the left, uh, a book just came out by Alyssa Katz, who was a, who's a very progressive journalist uh, based out of New York, called Our Lot, How Real Estate Came to Own Us. And she tells a narrative of how government policies have driven home ownership kind of amok, in a way that, that doesn't help. She's she's worried about low income people. It doesn't help them. And then you have Peter Wallison on on the right saying that the cause and others uh, the cause of the crisis has really been um, affordable housing mandates uh, imposed upon upon uh, the home home finance industry. I believe the quest the the jury is out as to exactly the role of the affordable housing mandates on the crisis. I'm I'm open to it being decided that it, it had a role, but the jury is out. I think that we really need to research that question and, and at least get a, a floor of data as to the role of those mandates in this crisis. My, my initial instincts were, um, uh, from, from the work that I had done, I wasn't seeing that as the, the primary cause. I mean, the crisis is much bigger um, th- than that. The bubble is much bigger than that, but, it, but it's certainly possible, and, and that, that's an argument. But I think there's, a, there's ideological stories in which that is a key part, but it is unclear to me what the, the, the facts on the ground are, and I'd like to know.
2: Yeah, uh, my personal opinion is they didn't cause the explosion but probably increased the size of the blast zone uh, in terms of where it was uh, took place. So that uh, if you look at our model, we look at the regulator as, as being containing risk. Certainly political pressures could be applied where instead they would be encouraging these uh, credit guarantor entities to take on more risk and it, that ultimately comes down to the political process of who gets elected president and to the Congress. So.
0: I, I think we have uh, time for one last question. So I'm going to ask the gentleman just in the front and the back.
1: So Al Millican, A. Media. Uh, if unemployment increases and continues among the American public, uh, how could this affect the future of uh, Freddie Mac and uh, Fannie Mae?
0: I'll I'll give my short answer to that, and if any of the panelists want to correct that. Uh, We're certainly seeing that in terms of uh, foreclosures and delinquencies, unemployment is is the number one driver of that. Uh, And if that continues to get worse, then certainly credit losses and Freddie, Fannie, FHA, and anybody else uh, who's heavily invested in mortgages is going to get worse. Uh, So in terms of any of these organizations suffering greater losses, I think there's probably no more important, maybe with the exception of house prices, the direction of unemployment.
2: I couldn't agree with you more, Mark.
0: <laughs> I'm going to remember that. Thank you.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, if, if you look at the latest uh, delinquency numbers that we put out, prime fixed rate mortgages are now the largest component of type of loan driving the uh, – uh, uh, of loans in, going into foreclosure. And that then is right in the traditional market that Fannie and Freddie have served. So they're seeing those go up. So it's going to put continued pressure on the two companies.
0: Well, I want to thank all of our panelists, and I want to thank you as the audience and uh, invite you upstairs for lunch in the Winter Garden.
4: Thank you.